The Spectator combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, and get a £20 Amazon gift voucher absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk slash summer. Hello and welcome to the Spectator's Book Club podcast. I'm Sam Leaf, the literary editor of The Spectator, and my guest this week is the writer Caspar Henderson, whose new book is A Book of Noises, Notes on the Oraculous. Oraculous being a wonderful word. Um, Caspar, this is a book that deals with all manner and all variety and all range of sounds and noises and music from the universal to the absolutely, you know, tiny. Can you tell me what the, what the kind of conception behind it is and how you how you set out to sort of shape this book, how it hangs together? Uh, sure, Sam. Thank you for having me on. I'll, I'll give that a try. I mean, all origin stories are suspect, perhaps particularly with books, but uh, with this one, I'll give you two briefly. One was that uh, I went to see a murmuration, you know, a, a great wheeling and turning of birds in the sky on the Norfolk coast. And of course, it was a wonderful sight. But what really astonished me that day was the noise that the birds made as they came overhead. I could hear all their individual pairs of wings and the wind rushing over their bodies as they came over my head. Uh, I was astonished by it, and and um, you know it struck me at the time that this was uh, this was oraculous rather than miraculous. It was a, a wonder of the ear, and but it also got me to thinking. Just gosh, I don't really know very much about sound. I mean, I've always been fascinated by music and and other sounds, but I realised that actually I didn't know very much. So that was one one thing. And then the other origin story is I was looking around for a book to write and um, I thought a lot of my friends don't read very much anymore. And if they do, they don't like to read long books. They like short, bite-sized chapters. So I thought I'll write a book which is made of lots of small pieces in the hope that uh, if, you're, if you're collapsing at the end of the day, you might enjoy just to read a little essay. And that's just about enough before you drop the book and fall asleep or uh, throw it across the room in disgust. Well, you, you've certainly got it. You know, it's it's a very eminently dip into interval book. And you do, do start by making some basic distinctions. You divide the book into larger sections. And what, what do those sections correspond to? Yeah, there are four sections in the book. And they are the sounds of the universe. And I call those sounds cosmophony. And then the three other sections, the title, the, the categories are, uh, were created by a man named Bernie Krauser, who is a rock musician and uh, a soundscape ecologist. And his three categories were geophony for the sounds of the non-living world. That would be things like thunder, volcanoes, lightning, and waves. Then biophony for sounds of the living world, but the non-human living world. And then anthropophony slightly awkward coinage, but obviously for sounds of humans. So that would include everything from beautiful music to horrible noise pollution. Well, let's start, let's start big. You know, one of the oldest ideas, and it's one you engage with quite early on, is this idea of the music of the spheres. And turned out, didn't it, that that didn't work, but it, it was an honourable an honorable failure. Can you explain how that came about and why you think it held such an attraction originally? Yeah, so it's a... Wonderful question. How it came about? Well, the the origin, it probably isn't the actual origin, but the, the origin story that we have there is Pythagoras, he of the, the triangle. One of his great things, as far as we know anything about this rather murky figure, is 
um, that he thought that everything was number and that uh, the universe was singing to us, that the planets, as they wheeled in the sky, they were singing beautiful harmonies and that if only humans could tune in and turn on <laughs> and drop out in, in his Pythagorean school, they would, they would be connected to the great forces of, of, uh, of what I would anachronistically, I guess, you know, call it mother nature or whatever it is that they thought. I mean, it may be an older idea than Pythagoras. It wouldn't be surprising if it comes from the Babylonians. But this, this idea has had a long, long history in, in the West. I, I don't know if it's um, sort of resonated in other civilizations in India and China to the same extent, but certainly in classical antiquity and right through to Renaissance Europe, people, I think, were entranced in various ways with this idea that, you know, for example, as the planets, the wanderers, as they move through the sky, they, they either are emitting a particular note or maybe a combination note, a chord, and that if only we could hear these notes, we would, uh, we would be closer to God. And then in the, uh, in, in the around 1600, Johannes Kepler, famous astronomer now, um, a contemporary of Galileo, thought he would try and ground truth this bit of poetry in observation. And he'd, uh, he'd worked with a man named Tycho Brahe, who probably really pioneered very, the first very accurate observations of the movements of planets and stars in the sky the in, the, in the late nose. 1500s. Sorry? The man famous for having a golden nose, yeah. I think so. I think that's right, yes. I, 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 yes, I, I, I don't remember. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think Johannes was Johannes Kepler was one of his star students. I'm, I'm, I have to be honest, I'm a little vague on, on that part of his life. But and anyway, Kepler was thought, yes, I, you know, I'll take these uh, I, I, these measure, these precise measurements that we're finding, and I'll I'll just show how they do correspond to these beautiful harmonies that we believe are in the heavens. So he did this and actually found out that the the harmonies were not not. Uh, harmonious. Um, some of the notes are very wobbly because many of the planets around the sun are in ellipses, you know, in, in kind of scorched circles, scorched orbits, ovoid. And so the note goes up and down as the the distance to the sun increases and decreases. And then if you put sort of Mercury, Venus, Earth, Mars, and the larger planets together, you, you get a, a pretty horrible set of noises. So having set out to demonstrate the harmony of the heavens uh, showed the opposite, and uh, that that kind of put a nail in the coffin of that particular ancient bit of theory. And uh, you know, of course, Kepler showed with his laws of planetary motion that uh, the the movements could be much better explained with some rather dry equations and not some beautiful music. But these the connection between music and mathematics is a kind of profound one, isn't it? Is there a sense of why it didn't work, if you like, for the planets, or is it simply that the, the planets aren't as beautifully harmonious and exact in their orbits as the sort of perfectionists would have had it? Well, of course, we, we're so used to thinking of ourselves in this particular solar system, but in the last 10 or 20 years, uh, cosmologists, astronomers have discovered that probably most stars in our galaxy, the great majority, and it's assumed in other galaxies, are surrounded by planets. And there are planetary systems around other planets which do move in almost what we would perceive as a harmonious way. That's to say that the ratios of their orbits are in intervals which, if you translate them into sound, the ratio according to 
distance being translated in the ratio of sound waves, uh, you get lovely chords. You get thirds and fifths and and other other intervals which sound nice to our ears. The waves come into sync and out of sync in regular predictable ways. That's in a sense what harmony is, and uh, so it, it it does it does occur in the universe. And interestingly, where these harmonies do exist, where these ratios are um, harmonious, they actually, um, that harmony helps to keep the planets in those orbits. Why our particular set of planets has not got there, you know, there could be all kinds of reasons. I mean, in the very early history of of our solar system, it may be that, for example, Jupiter went on a massive great bender and came hurtling in towards the sun and then out again. Uh, that might incidentally have helped to get more water onto the Earth. But anyway, whatever whatever the, the exact reasons, we, we're not in this solar system. We don't have that particular harmony. Now, I, th- I think I'm right to see, and you describe in your book how attempts have been made, I mean, I guess out of curiosity rather than out of some kind of Keplerian attempt to understand the, the nature of the solar system, to record the music of the spheres. Yeah, um... Well, yes. Such as it is. Uh, there were, there, there, so there's, in the 1970s, a jazz musician named Willie Ruff took Kepler's calculations and made an album of the sounds. And uh, it was described at the time, I think, in the New York Times as a kind of horrible wheedling that it induces nausea in the listener. But it was the first attempt to, to sonify, that's to say, to take data, to take numbers from... Uh, of course, Kepler had done this in his head, but nobody... Had, made a recording, obviously in 1600, 1610, they didn't have the technology, but in 1971 they did. And and um, so that was a, an attempt at sonification, turning data into to sound. And it wasn't a very promising start. As I said, you know, people reported uh, feeling sick as they listened to it. But but since then, people have taken that idea and run with it. And, and I mentioned some of these other planetary systems where the planets do move in harmony. And there are other which you can turn into sound and get these nice intervals. And of course, you can you can do it in other ways. So uh, there's a rather lovely, I think, clip um, produced by some musicians and researchers working with NASA, which um, gives you a, a sound picture of the center of our, our galaxy, the Milky Way. And it uses um, different instruments or different sounds, uh, kind of harp-like sounds and um, chimes and the plucking of violins to represent different parts of the electromagnetic spectrum. So you get a kind of, I think it's kind of, it sounds like a beautiful, to me at least, it sounds like a bubbling heavenly stream, I think. And it, it's random. It's uh, perhaps, you know, now, you know, in the in this sort of shadow of 20th century music and music concrete, we're more used to listening to slightly random but beautiful sounds. I think to a Baroque ear, it would have sounded kind of weird and unappealing. I'm not sure Johannes Kepler would have been impressed, but today, you know, we're used to ambient and Eno and the rest of it, so it might sound rather nice.
You also mentioned the, which feels to me like it's it feeds in some sense into this this idea about sound being a universal language, or intervals and harmonies are as universal a language as as mathematics. That there's a lot of sound on Voyager, uh, on the Voyager spacecraft. Yes, on the spacecraft. Yes, uh, yes in, in um, so back in the 1970s, I think pretty much exclusively thanks to Carl Sagan. Uh, they were sending these two, two identical craft into space to uh, take measurements and images of the outer planets, and then out into the beyond the solar system and into deep space. Thanks to Carl Sagan, records LPs made of metal and coated in gold were mounted on the craft, and on them uh, were a range of tracks, kind of a kind of mix list or uh, add to playlists from 1976 or 77, whenever it was. Uh, but it, I have to say it's striking in retrospect, uh, you know, just how broad I think Carl Sagan's musical reach was and his his lack of chauvinism. It's not, it's not all Western music. It's not all Bach, although some people think there is a bit too much Bach there. And uh, yeah, these, these records are now mounted on Voyager 1 and Voyager 2. I think they're on the verge of if they've not actually left our solar system and they'll keep hurtling into space. I think the records, they have a legend on them, says something like, to the makers of music, all time, all worlds. And of course, the the likelihood of these records and these craft ever being found by another set of life forms is vanishingly small. <laughs> it's, it's ridiculously tiny. So it's, it's an artwork. I think we can think of it as an artwork, a bit like... Um, you know, burying a sculpture and just knowing that it's there, the thought that uh, some of the sounds of Earth are heading into into interstellar space. If Kepler was disappointed in the idea that sound might provide a key to the universe, I'm kind of intrigued, and I'm wondering how your take on the idea. I mean, I had not very long ago spoke to the string theorist Michio Kaku, and he said, "Look, string theory, as you know, a new explanatory hypothesis for." how physics and reality in general is constructed, he said it basically works on sound. The idea is that, that the organising principle of the universe is music. Is that a return of music of the spheres, do you think? It's, it's a beautiful thought. I think there's an element of poetry in there, but of course he's a physicist would know much more than I. But as I understand it, I think he's right. Uh, and so, for example, I was reading some work by another physicist who was points out that... Uh, you know, you and I may be in school, we might remember this image we have of the atom and you have this tiny nucleus in the middle, a little bit like planets orbiting a star, these tiny electrons far out orbiting around. And from this kind of image from a school textbook, we have an idea that um, that atoms are mostly empty space. But actually, this is a, not a very good um, way of understanding what atoms are really like. And it's much be- much closer to reality to look to the physical accounts given by equations, which are more or less identical, as far as I understand, to um, the equations that describe sound waves. So 
yes, that you, you've got fields rather than particles. Uh, of course, you know, once you start to measure and intervene, then you get you, know, you get a particle. But if you're not actually in the forest, and so you're not hearing the tree falling, you're just letting the tree fall by itself. And yes, there is sound, and inside the atom, it can be described by equations that are very like uh, or virtually identical to those that describe acoustic waves. I think one of the differences is that um, they have um, irrational numbers in them. So you you have uh, think you know the square root of minus one, a number which when squared becomes negative, which causes impossible. So there's a way in which something is impossible is at least to our, our minds is explaining reality or accounting for it or giving you an accurate mathematical description of it, a musical description with an impossible element in it. I think that's rather beautiful. I think at this point we're heading off into territory that's above both of our pay grades. Um, <laughs> Definitely mine. <laughs> um, let me take you back now to, to, to Earth a bit to ask when you're talking about sound and you, you talk about the distinction that's sometimes made, though you're semi-skeptical of it, between sound and noise and the idea of music, how much is our understanding of sound, if you like, kind of mediated through the human anthropocentric view? Is there a way of kind of describing it universally or are we always kind of looking at essentially a human approach to what it's like? I don't know. My, my first answer is... Yeah, we, we necessarily, we're always coming through a human view and it's hard to imagine how we can escape that. But on the other hand, one of the things I've found joyous and fascinating in working on this book is is learning more about how our sense of what humans can apprehend and understand is, is still expanding and, and enriching in so many ways. So I, I mentioned earlier that uh, perhaps Johannes Kepler wouldn't like what I do like the sound of this, this sonification of the cosmos, and that's partly down to to a change in musical taste and a sense of our sense of what music is in the wake of um, 20th century music, and you know everything from 12 tone and music concrete through through rock and roll and everything else. Well, you know our musical tastes have changed, and that's that changes what we are maybe ready to listen to. But then also, what among other things technology and uh, new rec new ways of recording are making available to us uh, in terms of what we understand about the world, how we understand birdsong, how we understand sound in the oceans, you know, incredibly rich and extraordinary and important in ways that are only just becoming understood now. So what it's, you know, what, what's within the scope of the human is expanding and there's, there's a very positive side to that. One hopes the positive will prevail. <laughs> Well, I'm interested in what's, in what's, as it were, innate. I mean, you, you describe at one point listening to a very, very, or reconstructing a very, very old, a sort of ancient Greek piece of music from, I think it's a chorus from the Oresteia, fragment of chorus from the Oresteia, and saying, we can hear that this is sad. And that seems to imply to me that there's a, if you like, a, a kind of, I mean, like the sort of idea of the sort of minor key has a different emotional effect on us. Is, is that entirely acculturated or is there something that goes across cultures, across different use of scales? Because we know that you know Indian music uses different scales and so forth. Is there is there a sad sound that's a universal human experience or it's a it's a great question. Um I'm I'm gonna stick my neck out a bit. I mean I'm not a musicologist, I'm not an anthropologist and you know I'm sure this can be challenged uh because the picture is complex, but I'll stick my neck out and say Yes, uh, and my yes is based on the following 
rough argument, which is that music is never far from movement. In fact, they're really, music is movement. Music and dance are never really that far apart. In, indeed, in, in many cultures, there aren't separate words. Some cultures, there aren't separate words for music and dance. And, you know, even if we're, even if you're just sitting in your armchair and listening to music, it wouldn't be surprising if you're tapping a finger. You know, they're so deeply, um, you might get up and leap around the room, but they're so deeply connected. And the reason I mention that is because when, when it comes to, you know, very broadly happy sounds and sad sounds, I mean, certainly joy and excitement and the basic human emotions are universal. But when it comes to, for example, happiness, people, you know, it's energetic, it's, you know, upbeat would be so one would stand tall, one would, uh, uh, people expand their arms and their movements become generous and large. Whereas with uh, sadness and grief, we tend to, to some extent, hunch or bend over, become smaller and, and less, you know, slower perhaps. And this is, um, is I'm not going to say, well, echoed is probably not that way, but it's mirrored or it's actually embodied also in music. In that, for example, the, the intervals that we find broadly sad are, are smaller intervals, you know, minor intervals in, in the Western scale. Of course, this isn't, I mean, we have, this again is where it gets complicated because minor intervals are very much a Western concept. But nevertheless, where you have diminishing intervals and where you have, you know, what's called the dying fall in music, or I think um, there's a word in classroom, I think it's kretz, I almost certainly mispronounce it, um, but it means a sobbing sound. You know, they, they, these are very common and if they're not universal, I did find, for example, I did find when uh, researching the book that you find these um, same kind of diminishing falling scales in some traditional music from the highlands of Papua New Guinea, which has been out of touch with most of the rest of, not all of the rest of humanity for, I think, thousands of years. So there is a commonality. And so there's some sense, if not everything is universal, you know, so the minor interval in the West is... Arab scales and Indian scales are quite different and they might have a different association. It's not that they don't have a sense of happy and sad music, but they, they might read things in subtly different ways and of course have much more finely graded musical scales than we do in, in the 12 note system of the West. Now, animals, as you, I mean, you describe fascinatingly all sorts of different, you know, animals who use music, but is it music in the sense that we is it, I mean, we, you know, we hear whale song and we think it's kind of beautiful or we hear Nightingale's song. And I think you quote someone saying that, that there is emotion in that. Do you think that's, that's something we, we can kind of take to the bank or is, is the way we use, use music qualitatively different from the way animals use music? And we're kind of seeing emotion in something that's, that's a more instrumental process. So I'll start with the, I think, indisputable facts that um, some of the neural pathways and sort of chemical reward systems in the brain and the body that underlie pleasure and joy and other emotions in humans are identical in many other animals and not just in mammals, but also in birds and even, even in maybe in invertebrates and insects and things. So I think there's a very, I think there's no doubt there's a sound scientific basis for acknowledging that many other animals have emotions which are very much like ours, less complicated perhaps, you know, less mediated by language, obviously by language and culture in most cases, although arguably, you know, certainly some of the mammals have cultural practices which vary across populations. So basically, you know, animals feel, no question, fish feel. But the question of music, I mean, it, it, you know, music is a word. And, and of course, when 
in the 1970s when Roger Payne and others found that um, you know these weird sounds that have been recorded by the US Navy when they were actually looking for Russian submarines these weird sounds were were whale song and you know the word was used quite loosely it's just you know it's just moaning isn't it but actually when they looked at these in detail they found in the whale song humpback whales and and in other some other whales you've got patterns uh, of repetition and variation which are very like some things in human music they're not the same but they're very like and and uh, you know that there's something you know that we can given these animals feel emotion and given they are singing and improvising and coming up with new patterns which they're sharing you know that one year there might be a particular set of patterns that comes all the rage across the south pacific like the latest taylor swift song you know who knows <laughs> when it comes to birds it's you know um again there's no i think no doubt that birds many birds feel emotions uh that feel fear and and happiness and and other other emotions um but their song so the song of a nightingale is so different from human music and what perhaps what they're listening for is very different from the things we're listening listening for so they might not be listening for a tune they might be listening for the way that particular very rapid movements change in the particular timbre you know the kind of feel of the way a particular note or sequence is sung um an analogy somebody gives is it's it's more like listening to the way you pronounce the than considering the line of Eliot and what it means. It's, you know, how did he say the in the wasteland rather than what's the import of the phrase, the wasteland? Um, you know, it was, we have to imagine very different minds. It's not to say that they don't have emotions or that aren't important to them, but very different from our own. Yes, back to Thomas Nagel's, what is it like to be a bat? And noisy. Yeah, but we know, oh, well, he you. was wrong on a lot of things, I think. He, you know, we know a lot more about what it's like to be a bat and we do know that bats have feelings. <laughs> And some of them are very like ours. They're also, I mean, I'm surprised by this. You say, you say that the bats, I mean, two of the things we think of as kind of rather quiet or certainly ordinarily inaudible to us are bat squeaks and whale song. And both of them, by all accounts, are kind of more or less deafening. Well, yes, bats are incredibly loud, but there's a catch here, which is that um, the, these, the echolocation that they use, that's to say, you know, they're bouncing sound waves off. The objects around them so they don't fly into a tree but also of course they're trying to track down usually insects those those sound waves are very very high so this is just a property of physics they're super loud but because they're so high they don't actually go very far so that's why they have to like scream as a crazy volume but the sound only travels a few meters and of course it's way above our, our level of hearing so a healthy young adult can hear up to i think about twenty thousand hertz but we're talking often tens of thousands of hertz higher than that. It's like the dog whistle, you know, you don't hear that dog whistle. And for loud sounds in the ocean, so sperm whales, which are not, uh, they're, they're actually, they're also doing echolocation. They're not, they're not singing in the way that uh, humpback whales do and other, some, others of the baleen whales, but a toothed whale like a sperm whale, often hunting down its prey, typically squid, with echolocation, it's clicking. In fact, there are humans who do this too. There are blind humans who can click their tongues and get the measure of a room so they don't walk into the door frame rather than the door. And this is what the whales are doing deep down in the dark ocean, the sperm whales. And yes, it's super loud. It's like, I think it's 200 underwater decibels. Decibels in the water are different from on land uh, in the air, but it's, it's ridiculously loud. It was thought initially that they might be using these very, very loud clicks 
to stun and kill their prey, but now it looks like that's not the case. And they could travel a long distance as well, can't they? These, I mean, it's maybe not the clicks, maybe it's the humpback whale song, but there's extraordinary kind of details about how far away these things can be heard. Yeah, it's, um, that's right. So obviously water is much denser than air. And uh, one of the consequences, sound travels much better and much faster in water. It travels much further and much about, I think, four and a half times as fast as it does in air. And it can travel much, much further. So the oceans these days are extremely noisy because of all the human activity, ship engines and seismic surveys for oil and other things. But before humans were making so much noise, maybe back in the age of sail or, or prior to that, um, whale song could travel un uninterrupted. There's a there's a channel, there's kind of is a, a focusing layer of sea. To, it's to do with um, pressure and temperature, which kind of makes a long distance channel like a, a pipe, if you like, for carrying uh, sound over long distances. And, and it may be that whale song can travel, or it does. It has been found to travel many hundreds and even thousands of kilometers. And it's thought that maybe even whales were once able to hear each other in other oceans. So from the Pacific to the Atlantic, possibly. I mean, that, that does make particularly urgent a point you make about particular, which I, I hadn't known. I'd always thought it was ships, engines and submarines and things that were messing up the oceans for whales. It's air guns are the real villain, if I'm understanding you. Yeah, oh, yes, there, there are um, arrays of uh, kind of, think of it like, I don't know, think of it like a harrow behind a tractor, so behind a ship, you know, um, if you go from tractor to ship and imagine a great big, sort of grid being dragged behind it. it has lots of these pistons essentially crudely with compressed air they make very very loud noises and that noise can penetrate down below the seabed and help the surveyors determine whether there's likely oil or gas down there they're really really loud much pretty much louder than any any sounds made by animals you know probably the only things that have been louder have been um well be volcanic eruptions and uh bolides hitting the earth from space and uh they're, 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 the, the, in some cases these uh the survey vessels will be going up and down for weeks or months making incredible noise and having a massive impact on on life in the oceans um there's an american biologist and writer david george haskell his book out i think last year or the year before called sounds wild and broken he writes very well about this and i I picked up on his writing in in the book of noises, and of course, there's there's a lot of work out there on this, but it's it's really sh shocking and and terrifying and devastating. I mean, the good news here is that um, if we did just stop oil, uh, new oil, and uh, made a more rapid transition to cheaper alternatives, um, as soon as you stop doing these surveys, the noise stops, and it's one of those sources of pollution, unlike say plastic or other toxins, that uh, goes away as soon as you. You stop making the noise. Yeah. So it's a very much a soluble problem. Okay. You, you, um, I mean, I, I don't want to bang on about whales too much, but we know what harm it's causing because a whale earwax is a is a fascinating fact to me. Oh yeah, no, that's that's stunning. Uh, I mean, that that's more historical. So we're talking the sort of nineteenth and twentieth centuries rather than the big uh, seismic surveys that are going on today and in the most recent decades. But yes, researchers found one of the things that happens to have been preserved in some cases is plugs of earwax from the ears of whales that have been caught during the great 
eras of whaling up until the 1960s or 70s. And one of the things that's preserved in these plugs of wax are chemicals, I'm going to say hormones, but I'm not quite sure that's right, but they're chemicals that uh, indicate real stress in the animal. And a bit like the rings in a tree trunk, the researchers, if you know the, when the whale died or was killed, and you know what age, you know, you can work out its age from its size and other things, you can see which years essentially it was most stressed. And they found that taking hundreds of these and correlating to the most locations where whaling was most intense, you know, where, where the sort of whales was at greater scale, you could, there's more or less there's that correlation between the stress the whale was under and the intensity of the whaling, you know. So whales could hear other whales and be or see and, and by other means, you know, be aware of other whales being killed and would be enormously stressed by that. There was a bit of a, a fall off in these indicators in World War II, but it depended again on the year, depending on how much uh, naval warfare was going on where. So if there was a almighty great um, set two between, let's say, the Americans and Japanese in the Pacific at a certain point, I think you know you could see that in the whales as well in the in the record in the earwaxes. But otherwise, because whaling, the kit, the slaughter whales tailed off in World War Two because people were kind of busy. In some some areas, the stress fell off from whales too, and and that's seen in the earwax. That's most extraordinary. <laughs> now, we often think of it, you know, as your your book's almost premised on the, you know, we don't think so much about sound, but in your account of it, hearing is is sort of one of our most basic, our most primal senses, and it comes before a lot of the senses we now rely on yes it, it i think it certainly predates sight you know eyes are this newfangled innovation from the cambrian explosion <laughs> about 500 million years ago but um the capacity to sense vibration both seismic and acoustic waves long predates the cambrian you know it goes back well bacteria can likely i think there is this is a little bit uncertain, but it's very likely, you know, that, well, but bacteria can sense vibration and maybe sound waves, and certainly what we maybe misleadingly call simple one-celled organisms. They're not simple at all. They're incredibly complicated, but they, they detect vibration and hearing. And, and a lovely example, you know, maybe we can, this is an organism alive today, but um, it's very, very ancient in its origin, and it wouldn't be, you know, it's, it's very ancient ancestors would have had this capacity the, the larvae from a coral reef, when a coral reef is reproducing and the coral shoot out um, these little um, tiny one-celled organisms to go and settle elsewhere, these tiny one-celled organisms have hairs on the outside, which uh, as they're floating through the ocean, they can, they can hear what's going on around them. They can sense vibration in the ocean. They can preferentially select a place to settle if it sounds like a healthy reef, a good place to be. And these tiny hairs on the outside of these single cells are very, very similar, basically the same evolutionary origin as the, the tiny hairs inside the cochlea, the little tiny shell-like organisms in our inner ears. So the sound goes a very long way back. Well, there's, I mean, among the other, you know, because this book absolutely full of little, you know, nuggets of good God. You say plants, for instance, can hear running water, or some of them can. Yes, I think it's... Um, I think it's a I think it's a fail crest. Hope I have that right. It's a it's a kind of one of us. I guess it's very easy to grow, and maybe you can eat it afterwards. Um, but I think it's very easy to grow and and, and do experiments on the lab. It, it was found that I think 
fairly recently, like the last decade or two, because in, until even a decade ago, I remember I was reading books by quite eminent um, plant scientists saying, you know, sound in the plant kingdom, don't be silly. You know, how could, how could it possibly, a plant has no brain, it has no nervous system, how, how could it possibly use sound? Um, but it's found in the case of, I think, the Thalecrest that, for example, you have a, um, a sealed pipe, like, a, you know, a pipe that would connect to your water tap, uh, but there's no way for the plant to get in. But this pipe is running through earth and you plant the Thalecrest above it, it will preferentially send roots to where, where, towards where it's hearing, you know, using that word in a vertical commas perhaps, but nevertheless sensing the water moving through the pipe, even though it can't penetrate the pipe. Wow. And also um, the, the alum blue caterpillar, which is a lovely story of a, you know. Yeah, this is a rather beautiful uh, butterfly we have in the UK, I think, and we do. But it has a slightly sinister part to its life cycle. It's uh, kind of like a cuckoo. And it tricks ants into taking its larvae back to their nests. And it does this partly with chemical signals, but it also sings to the ants. Uh, and it mimics um, the sounds that they're familiar with and they like. So, uh, yes, it's a kind of siren voice. And then, of course, it gets into the nest and it gets nicely um, fed by, by ants in the nest. And I think then it eats the grubs of the ants. So it's even worse than a cuckoo. All a cuckoo does is push the other little birds out of the nest. Cunning. Um, now, you mentioned the Precambrian explosion. Before that, I mean, just one of the great pleasures of all these things is just, we were, we're lucky, are we not, that we were not around to hear the largest sound that has been heard in Earth's history. Can you tell us what that was? Uh, we were around. Uh, at least, you know, you're, you're my great, 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 great to the nth degree grandparents were around <laughs> in kind of Schrodinger form, you know, in little little rodents, or rodent-like mammals, I should say, um, you know, scuttling around under the feet of the dinosaurs. And this is probably the loudest sound, at least in recent Earth history, because it's, it's like only 65 million years ago, and, you know, the Earth is four and a half billion years old. So it's kind of like, you know, if the Earth were a year old, it would be sometime in late December. But yeah, it's a long time ago on our scale. And, and this is when this uh, Chicxulub bolide uh, hit um, the area that's now just north of the Yucatan Peninsula, and I think the calculations are—you know—I I forget, but it's many million times as loud as a nuclear, the biggest nuclear explosion, or the loudest volcanoes recorded in in recorded history, and the sound waves—you know—that would have travelled around the planet. I'm going to say dozens or hundreds of times. You know, it would have been—it would have been enormous. <laughs> <laughs> no eardrum left unruptured. Yeah, <laughs> much, much more than a death metal concert. Yes, does. I mean, this question, which seems to have kind of preoccupied people, some of them slightly cranky over the years, that kind of deleterious effects of really, really loud noises or noises of a particular frequency could be used to harm or sometimes to heal. How how seriously should, should we take those those ideas of sound weapons and, and indeed sound therapy? It's a huge area. I mean, with um, sound can be loud enough sound, you can create an embolism, a bubble of air, or or other kinds of impact on a human body and kill somebody. You can do that. But as far as I'm aware, the downers people have you know looked at this in a lot of detail, like considered if it can be deployed. But it's just there are better, quicker, easier, cheaper ways of killing people if you want to do it. So. But what what has what is of quite often used is um, 
really obnoxious music or sounds to drive people crazy. There's a well-known case maybe to our generation. What was it? To uh, Noriega, wasn't it? Yes, exactly. In Panama, uh, Panama, Grenada, Grenada, wasn't it? Um, anyway, um, this Latin American dictator who was holed up in his palace and the U.S. Marines played really loud music to kind of drive him nuts. And, and I think uh, music was also used in places like Abu Ghraib much more recently in the early 2000s. And, uh, you know, part of the regime to keep people awake and uh, deprive them of sleep and, uh, and of course, offend them culturally. So you play American heavy metal to a pious Muslim who's also a fanatic. <laughs> You're going to offend him as well as, uh, as, well as deprive him of sleep. And it's, it, it was, I was struck in recently in a, you know, quite a number of reports one might have read in the Russian invasion of, of Ukraine that, and of course, maybe we know this from previous wars, you know, World War One, these relentless barrages. Obviously, there are the, there's the damage inflicted by kinetic impact and explosion, but the sheer noise and the relentlessness of it can have a huge impact on people and, and really... Um, you cease being able to think and, and um, operate very effectively because you're relentlessly bombarded by sound. They call it acoustic terror. It's not going to physically damage you immediately in the way that a super loud sound wave might do, but it could drive you nuts. And on the on the healing side, is there is there kind of concrete evidence that sound can do us good? I mean, you have a lovely description of undergoing a gong bath yourself, though I'm not sure whether that was a healing experience, but... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. No, I, well, I'll come to the gong bath, but I mean, uh, just a couple of things before that. So, something I was amazed to learn, maybe common knowledge to others, but uh, if you have a a cataract in your eye, one of the, it can be ablated. It can be taken. I mean, obviously, it can be physically removed, but there is a, a technique quite successful for using particular frequencies, hand waves, to to dissolve it and uh, clear clear the cataract. Um, you know that's a very concrete. That's a very concrete example of sound being used for a direct intervention, and and there's plenty of evidence that music can help people relax. That it can lower their blood pressure, reduce their their heart rate, calm their breathing, and that you know can have beneficial impacts. There's a lot of evidence now that singing can be a therapeutic therapeutic intervention for depression. The NHS has had some. Uh, trials using it for uh, new mothers who are suffering postpartum depression and has uh, you know it, it has good results. Yeah, I, w- I went for a gong bath. Uh, <laughs> uh, my editor said you should do it, uh, and I uh, was a little skeptical, but I, I did. And um, yeah, I think you know we got this long talk about this highly engineered German precision manufactured Tibetan gong that was played and you know vibrated away. But after 10 or 20 minutes of thinking this is nonsense, I began to actually really get into it and uh, started to visualize water flowing over rock. And uh, I kind of saw the point. I, yes, it's not so bad. I would recommend it. <laughs> now, I mean, we're, we're reaching the end of our time, unfortunately. There's so much more we could talk about. But I'm wondering, can you maybe think a bit about what your favorite sounds are and whether maybe you've got, got a clip somewhere you, you might like to play us out with? Sure. Uh, there's a book ends with a list of favorite sounds and I encourage people to make their own list and I mean a few of them there's that first glugging noise as you just pour the first 
little wine out of a bottle into a glass. I always like that sound. <laughs> I think it's a great sound in its, in its own right, but of course, you know, it anticipates that uh, uh, the moment when you have the first drink. It's a little Pavlovian conditioning there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but it is a good sound. It's quite musical, you know, and uh, I even I have to say to my shame, I've sort of, you know, if you're very careful, you could almost pour it, but not quite, and then put the wine back in and do it again. So you can never... <laughs> Uh, that, that's one. But I think uh, more seriously, uh, if there's a sound to play us out, um, I'm absolutely entranced by the singing of women of the Bayaka people. These are what we sometimes call pygmies in Central Africa. They live in the rainforest and they've been living there probably for many thousands of years. And they have a actually very complex and wonderful music. But singing in the forest with the reverberation over distance it's beautiful in its own right. And also the knowledge that um, music like this, humans have been making beautiful music like this for at least tens of thousands of years. And I wouldn't be at all surprised if it's been much longer, uh, hundreds of thousands of years, at least. And um, I think that's a wonderful thought. Well, Casper Henderson, thank you very much indeed. The Book of Noises is out now and take it away, the Bayaka. Thank mm-hmm. you.